All right. So today I wanted to do one more session in the realm of food quality in, in the pursuit of long-term nutrition management aligned with our health values, body comp management, athletic pursuits, flexible dieting. I, I thought of this in terms of promoting the book I'm writing right now. Flexible dieting has gone through an entire generation now where it's completely normalized. It's accepted as the greatest way to quantify nutrition, which is obvious. It's it's objectivity. It's it's understanding the language of nutrition, which is tracking macronutrients. The flexibility side or the qualitative side, I think, is the next generation. That's an era I hope we're entering into. So to understand the relationship with food quality and where that matters, so far, I'm I'm quite convinced in some of our most recent research reviews prove that quantity first, if, if you are obese, I don't care how many good foods you're eating and so forth, that is a state that's going to create a lot of stress on, on your morbidity and so forth. But when you get down to apples to apples, oranges to oranges in terms of your food quantity is taken care of, uh, you're looking at isochloric studies or you're looking at your body composition being in a more favorable space, then we start to see the impact of food quality. And this was in, this was a study that popped up as I was doing some searches to see if there was anything interesting I could present to you guys. And it's just, it's just not common to find even the term macronutrient in terms of that quantification in research. I mean, that's just how new macronutrient tracking is, even though it has been quickly normalized in, in the last generation. So then to take it a step further, and this particular group looked at gender differences, male, female, who's doing what discernibly with, with macronutrient adherence? Because as a coach, I certainly see that as probably the first filter of my grid. If clients are struggling or if they're succeeding wildly and seemingly effortlessly, this is the first step. It's, it's how compliant can we be? And I do have a strong distaste for words like adherence and compliance because it sounds so autocratic and black and white. And, and that's why flexible dieting is my thing. I, I want there to be ways to fit things into our lifestyle, not completely conform our lives around one thing like nutrition. So this, this really got my attention and uh, it was... It was published by the British Medical Journal, which turns out to be a very, very sprawling system of publications and uh, tentacles into healthcare in the United Kingdom. But uh, oh, I didn't have the date there. I thought this was maybe like 2013 or something. I'll have to look that up. But th there is a couple things I wanted to say just about the timing and so forth. But British Medical Journal, they have as a... a in, in the next couple of slides, I'll show you, you know, how detailed this is because they're currently conducting longitudinal studies through a base population they created between 2006 and 2011 that is pretty remarkable. I, I think you'll be impressed. But part of their introductory comments were poor quality diet is a leading cause of morbidity. 
Adults continue to consume too much saturated fat, sugar, red and processed meat, oops, typo, and sugar sweetened beverages, while intakes of fruit, vegetables, oily fish, and fiber are insufficient. Little or no evidence of this changing. We don't seem to be improving, no matter how many people get involved and how much money is spent. Strategies to improve diet are insufficient at a population level. That that last statement, I like because this gets into the kind of longitudinal studies they're doing, you know, especially as a single payer healthcare system where the government has a very vested interest in making sure people are getting healthier. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting philosophical construct to consider whoever is paying the bill might be more incentivized to have better outcomes. And when the government is doing that with all of the power that they have, you'll see a lot more action in terms of mitigation and, and resources to try to help people. So um, I hope I have that slide. I thought it was here sooner. Sorry about that. So the the thing that they uh, looked at in terms of this particular design, I guess that comes up in the methodology, is they wanted to compare with survey questionnaires and they ended up having more than 200,000 people participate in the study. They wanted to see how closely they were just adhering to what the normal baseline minimal, what would be the RDA equivalent to us, recommended daily allowances were in Britain. So what they say in their health agencies is that men should have 2,500 calories a day. That would be a normal baseline. Women should have about 2,000 I isolated that out because I think that itself warrants a little discussion. Uh, total fat under 35%, um, percent, which I think is, you know, that's that's a good benchmark. That 35% is pretty high. I think 30% is pretty high, but you get into higher qualities and that may be okay. Saturated fat, 10% or lower. Polyunsaturated fat, which especially if the constituent part of that is is higher in the omega-3 areas, then there, there are minimums that you would want to see. Carbohydrates should be above 50%, but with, with a, a certain amount of total sugar. So this is not added sugar, but when you see that total sugar, including fruit, processed foods, and so forth, should be under 120 grams for men, under 90 for women, it seems pretty lenient. I mean, I, I, this shouldn't be too hard to hit. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of sugar. Uh, and then protein at 0.75 grams per kilogram of body weight in the U.S., of course, it's 0.8. That also is pretty, pretty minimal. I mean, that is a level that over and over and over science agencies have said should be doubled. So all that to say that this is a pretty low bar. I mean, if if you are not hitting this, you're you're in trouble. You're in you're, you're at higher risk of all kinds of issues with your health. But for sake of arguments, I want to come back just for a second to those calories because we know through other tests that the average basal metabolic rate of the average adult male, 18 to 80 years old, is around 1,650 calories for women, 1,350. So add in NEAT, non-activity, non-exercise activity, um, intentional activity, things like that, then of course those numbers can elevate to more of a functional metabolic level. So I don't disagree with these numbers, but again, it's still high. I mean, I think if most women were eating 2000 calories a day, I mean, 
maybe half of them are maintaining their weight. I think half of them are probably gaining because of, of sedentarianism and so forth. I mean, just too many people are not moving enough to support that level of calorie intake. But nonetheless, let's see how the UK did. So this is, this is I, I should have put this sooner. This is what I was searching for in my mind. So this UK biobank system, they started this, this whole group, as I said, back in 2006. They had it fully populated by 2011. They have a half a million people that when they started, they were 40 to 69. And they went in and just said, hey, we want you to be part of this long-term database. And we want to occasionally send you surveys. We want to occasionally do some follow-up exams and tests. And this is basically us keeping the finger on the pulse of our society, of our society's health. So pretty amazing, I think, especially with a country as small as the UK, to have half a million people who have agreed to to participate, just to kind of see. It's They're not in a study where they're being told what to do. They're just in this database so that the UK health officials can, can check in and occasionally do some some good survey studies as they attempted with this one. So this particular study, uh, they simply reached out to uh, 208 or so thousand people in that database. And they said, hey, do us a favor if you would. We, we, we have a couple hundred questions for you. You definitely got to sit down and, and take some time to do this. And when I say 200 questions, it was kind of like you see survey questions, they try to ask the same question in different ways to just get higher filter of um, consistency with answers and so forth. But it's just a simple 24-hour dietary behavior recall. So did you have any of this food yesterday? Did you have any of this food? How many servings of fruit did you have? How many this, this? Did you go out to eat? How much water did you drink? They had all of these questions and then they even screened for atypical behavior. So they had chances in the survey to say, well, hey, if you did have this, is that normal for you or is that just a fluke thing? You know, you were at a you know birthday party or something that never liked this or your 40th anniversary. So th they really did statistically try to get rid of a lot of things that just would skew the data. So they ended up going, you know, they, they kicked out about 10,000 people just because they they thought they were not that that 24-hour recall was not typical for them. They accounted for portion sizes and, and they were doing all these comparisons to the dietary guidelines. Um, as I said, they started out with about 208, 209,000 people. 55% were female. The average age was 55 and a half for the women. Um, and another typo. Um, oh no, that was years. Yeah, I'm sorry, years. Uh, 56 and a half for, for the men. Uh, and not too much of deviation. I, I guess it kind of covers most of where they started with their database because with that um, deviation spread, you're looking at down in the early 40s, up into the mid 60s. BMI, I thought was pretty lean, 26 to 27 with a four to five point deviation. Uh, interestingly, uh, and they didn't make any real notes of this, but they wanted to account for socioeconomic status. So about 36% were in the least deprived. So, you know, people who had, you know, kind of upper middle class status, uh, and then only 8% were considered the most deprived people in poverty. So I think that was pretty representative in 
in an N of over 200,000, I think that, you know, does almost guarantee a pretty normal uh, split like that. So here are some of the results. This being a survey study, there, there isn't a lot to talk about in terms of methodology. That would all be more something you could be interested in and in how they did the statistical analysis, which I'm not going to go into. But uh, it, we're going to jump right into some results here. Um, let me see here. It may be easier to show you guys. Well, let's, let's just go through here. Um, so the average total fat for men, 70, I'm sorry, for women, about 73 grams, 83 grams for men, 72 for women, I'm sorry. Um, total sugar, 115 and 125. So they indeed were getting up pretty high. Uh, some of this stuff is broken down a little bit easier to understand in the next couple slides. Total carbs, 234 to 270. Total fiber, which ends up, you'll see what a, the biggest statistical anomalies in terms of deviation from what the recommendations would be. It was, was just really, really low. Um, where the saturated fat as a as an amount, you know, an average of about 30 grams of saturated fat per day. Let me skip over here a little bit. Uh, macronutrient intake per kilo. I'm going to skip through that. So some visual representation here, age specific mean daily intake. So when you look at the blue dashed lines and then the trend lines, the scatter plots there, uh, blue is male, red is female. The dashed lines are what the, the daily intake recommendations should be. Um, so, and then of course you see on the X, Y axis here, you know, the actual total calories and then the, just the age. They, they wanted to show this as kind of this um, linear change as subjects were were getting older in years from 40 years old to 70, you know, were, were there any trends? And, and I think you can see some here. So total energy, um, let's, let's go over here to carbohydrates. Uh, so the, the men, for example, this bottom left corner, total carbohydrates, if you wanted more than 50% of your calories to come from carbs and you, you are supposed to be getting about 2,500 calories a day to the UK guidelines, you can see that two, an average of 270 or so is, is quite under that. But then you look at total sugar. So as a percent of those carbs, sugar was high. Then you also see when it comes to uh, saturated fat, you know, how much higher, now I'm up on the top row, saturated fat is higher. Uh, total fats was actually a little low. And that's why I think I think the US and it appears the UK, first time I've really looked at their stuff. I, I just think one of the take home messages for us are how outdated some of these recommendations are. In a society, Western society, where more than 50% of people are overweight and obese, and if you really looked at where those comorbidity lines start to elevate, you could say that 75% of early death comes from obesity, and yet the standards where the government says would be okay, we're actually under on fat, we're under on carbs, 
were under on calories, it seems to be a problem with the standards, first of all. But then as just a percentage of food intake, even though most people, men and women, women were a little closer to that line calorically, when you have a higher percent of calories, carbs from sugar and fat from saturated fat, you're, you're going to run into the problems that we see. So now when you look at the, um, the non-adherence, so you see how far we're actually deviating from those standards. So let's, let's look down here at total sugar, because that was one of the, the biggest contention points of the study. So away from the norm, women tend to skew higher than men. And even though they, they couched this entire study as a way of looking at gender differences, and obviously they, they did, I just think there's a lot more to look at in a general sense than that. But in the places that they were able to find some substantial changes in gender, women clearly eat more sugar than men. And from my practice, I think that's pretty true. Um, uh, where was the saturated fat? I would have thought men eat more saturated fat, but it was women were actually a little higher there. And I think that's because some of the more highly palatable foods, when you're they, they specifically noted, as you'll see coming up, chocolate, ice cream, candy, things like that, those tend to have a lot of saturated fat, not just sugar. Uh, a lot of those products are made with things like Crisco and oil, as well as sugar. I mean, that's you know the two main ingredients in in a highly palatable baked product. So just by default, if you're reaching for those processed sweet sugary foods, you're going to end up getting higher saturated fat. Then the polyunsaturated fatty acids over here, uh, again, you know, men actually tend to do a little bit better. And I think I could guess kind of why, just because of some of the foods that, that people may gravitate toward. Um, but, you know, I, I think both men and women were okay here. But it was a place where men just trended a little higher. Women are getting more from saturated fat, which, you know, I, I, my mind typically just kind of went toward meat products, burgers, steak, things like that. So I thought that would be opposite. And I think they mentioned that a little bit. Remember, the amount of protein that is recommended, even slightly lower than our RDA, women were even lower in that, moving away from that norm, and men were barely keeping up with even that minimum level. Um, total carbs here as even though the total carb level uh, was under for men and women, when you look at deviation, the women were certainly, you know, a little bit higher than men as their percent of calories. So when you look at that breakdown now in just pure, numerical value, macronutrients, grams, you look at the total percent of non-adherence. Almost 70% of women are, are not adhering to those levels, 50% of men, 49%. This is why I said fiber was the biggest red flag. Almost 100%, 96 and 97% of men and women are just not even getting close to the amount of fiber that they should. And behaviorally, if you just simply made one change, and the researchers made this claim, you just have to move the needle a little. You change one little habit, one little bit, 
And it really does change your risk factor for, for death and disease due to health status, due to nutrition. So what would happen if somebody decided, well, I guess just as intuitive eating may go, health habits, maybe I'll just start eating a salad a day. Maybe I'll just make sure I have some vegetables for lunch and dinner. What, what right now? I have plenty of clients who do none. I look at initial food logs, and it just doesn't exist. And you find out from these clients that yeah, I just just don't eat those. Like I don't know, maybe once a month I have a vegetable. Um, but what happens volumetrically if you start getting more fiber in those foods that have more fiber? Of course, hunger is going to go down. You're probably going to have fewer cravings. You're reaching less for the sugary foods and highly palatable foods. Um, but the deviation for men and women with fat, this is why I said I, I just didn't see a whole lot to do with gender. Sure, 70% versus 50 for men and women, but you still see you know, half of men, 70% of women are eating too much sugar. You see nobody's getting enough fiber by a mile. You see total fat deviation. 35% of women are not are getting too much saturated fats, you know, maybe not enough polyunsaturated fats. 32% of men, not a big difference between gender. Saturated fat, same thing. Nobody's really winning this one, even though the men showed a little difference. Total carbs, half of the people, so forth. Um, ironically, again, like I said, you could see that, wow, look, it, at least we're getting, quote, enough protein, only 13 and 19% deviation, but that's to that horribly substandard minimum level. So some of their discussion points, and then I, I really want to parse this out with you guys, because I, I think some of those behavioral elements are where we can make the biggest impact with this information. If if this means anything to us, if we're going to say this this longitudinal survey study does anything to change my behavior, it's going to be blank. I think you guys are going to come up with, with some good answers to that. So in their discussion points, they said adherence was suboptimal in both sexes. Women significantly more likely to exceed recommended intakes of to total sugar, total fat, and saturated fat. Men more likely to have intakes under the recommended amounts of polyunsaturated fats, carbs, and protein. Contrary to the general assumption that women would be more likely to adhere to dietary recommendations and have a higher quality diet. So I, I probably had that bias going in. I probably would have said, yeah, women just eat better than men. Like men are pigs. Like we just do that. We're going to eat bacon and butter and all this stuff. And in the wild with a 24 hour retro survey study, it just, you know, like I said, I don't see a lot of difference anywhere except for those minor, well, maybe they're not minor points statistically. Um, but we all have a lot of work to do. Different areas of focus. Here's a point that may be applicable to all of us. Different areas of focus might be useful in target adherence. Maybe women do just genetically hardwiring of the endocrine system, et cetera. Um, maybe there just are more cravings for sugar. Uh, and they did make a couple points that I, that I pulled out as they were talking about their own strengths and weaknesses. Of course, when you look at total sugar and they're allowing, for example, in a case of men, you can have up to 120 grams of sugar. They're including things like fruit, but it was substantially evident that uh, most of the sugar was from processed foods. Again, quote, women consume more foods high in added sugars than men, such as cookies, chocolate, and ice cream. 
so men win basically i mean we're just clearly the better sex that's what this study shows i'm kidding um so one of the things i liked about this is that I, I I do pick this out every once in a while because I'm a science uh, writer, writer in general, and editor, and I love some of the newer ways that graphically studies are presented. And right up front by the abstract, this group, the British Medical Journal, basically said, here are the strengths and limitations of our study. The strength is the availability of 24-hour recall on dietary behavior. I mean, 24 hours ago, that should be easy to remember. 200,000 people permits a comprehensive evaluation of sex differences. Self-reported dietary data, this is a con or a limitation, is subject to recall bias, social desirability bias, and underreporting, which may be sex differential. You know, maybe men were just lying more than women. Maybe that could skew the data. But again, 200,000 people, I think that probably washes out quite a bit. Given that over 90% of the participants in the UK biobank are Caucasian, the present analysis uh, maybe cannot be generalized to other ethnic groups. That would be completely true. I mean, I think it would be interesting to see if this study where you had 100% of the people who were white, then another study with 100% of people who were black, who were Asian, who were this religion, that religion, this culture, that culture. I mean, of course, you're going to get some of those differences. But again, as representative of a population... I'm not sure in the UK. Uh, here, I know 14% of our population is black. Um, so 90%, maybe that's close enough to be representative as an organization looking again at population level evidence. Then the cross-sectional nature of our analyses uh, precluded the examination of association. So they weren't looking at, well, because of this group with high sugar, they had this much more cardiovascular risk and so forth. That just wasn't within the scope of that study. So they were saying that up front. All right, guys, this, I thought, you know, as a survey study, which definitely doesn't give us tons of things, tons of nuance to get into, it's pretty straightforward. I thought this was kind of interesting um, for a couple reasons. It shows that we suck. Like we're not eating well at large. We're just, we're doing a lot of things wrong. And as they said in their very beginning premise, it's not getting better. We're just not. More information is not helping us. So I humbly ask you guys how we can fix this. Please, Dr. Souders. All right. First, I got to chime in here as the grammar police. Um, so one of the things I noted right away is they, as in medical studies, um, refer to sex being XY chromosomal. And Joe, you were saying gender, and that that's not the appropriate way to parse this out because uh, if I am a double X chromosome, I am a genetically female sex, but I could change my gender to be a male. And that I think would be an unbelievably fascinating study because if you actually had transgender people compared to non-transgendered people, you might find out whether some of these eating habits are sort of socially, behaviorally, um, due to what are social expectations among the female choice versus or assigning of gender. Like, is this a gender thing or is this a sex thing? Because a sex thing is more likely to be genetic, you know, biochemical, hormonal, structural. Um, and if you're, particularly if you're not taking hormonal modifications with a gender change, um, 
that would that would be really telling because are you just simply behaviorally acting differently? So is there something behaviorally about how women are taught and nurtured um, early on that helps drive certain eating behaviors or responses? We do understand that um, when people are faced with stresses, we know this from self-determination theory, that they will find ways to gain control and autonomy. And you know, certainly you, I'm sure Joe and everybody else has seen a ton of people with, um, you know, with obesity, overweight and, and disordered use of food as a coping mechanism. That's not uncommon. Uh, but I wonder how much of that could be a learned gender role as, a, as opposed to a biological sex thing. Thank you very much. And now you make me wonder because since this was that that's one of the reasons I had mentioned this study was about a decade old uh, before transgenderism was really, you know, this discussed in media and culture. Um, so I, I I will see that that could have been totally my mistake and and point well taken. And, and that was the first thing I thought of with this study, Jen, was what an interesting thing to look at, because I know intersexuality. And I'm glad we brought this up first, since the whole study design was to look at sex differences. Um, you know, it, it's it's so little understood. The people who first looked at XX and XY chromosomes, even back in the 80s, said this might only account for about 20 to 25 percent of actual sex determination is at that chromosomal level. We know embryonically how your body can go from one to the other to the other a couple of times. And that's why some people are born with even both external sex organ traits. Um, read a, a, an article about a man who was 70 years old, had you know kids, grandkids, and so forth, ended up having some kind of a, a surgery, and they discovered he, he, he had a womb. You know, he had a uterus, you know, on top of being a fully functional male his entire life. So I, I thought the same thing. Like, like, it could be interesting to see people who identify as trans and they have those internal neurological and hormonal tendencies to identify as the opposite gender, if that would align in one group versus the other. But uh, in, any of the thoughts while I've got you, Jen, on just the the super high sugar, higher saturated fat, I know a lot of this isn't necessarily surprising, but at the same time, those levels, like those amounts wow. are kind of high. It's it's surprising. Yeah, wow. Like, wow, I, I set a total daily sugar intake level of 50 grams. That's everything fruit, you know, and I never hit that sucker. I mean, unless, you know, unless it's like Thanksgiving or Christmas or so, I just don't hit that thing. You know, so it's amazing. Um, yeah, I what I didn't see, and maybe I just missed it or maybe it was because it was pared down. Um, but I'm trying to remember, did they have an actual fiber recommendation? I know that um that there are some here in the u.s but i i don't know if i saw whether there was a fiber recommendation but um, that would be interesting to know yeah i mean obviously i think people are getting insufficient protein um excessive fat particularly the saturated fat insufficient fiber excessive sugar and probably excessive energy and you know like you said really if you if you move one needle uh, if you just were to encourage your patients, clients, whatever, to add vegetables to their diet. And sometimes you have to teach people how to make them so that they actually will like them so that they'll eat them. 
um, that can go a long way to solving a whole lot of problems. First, you'll bring up fiber, you'll increase that satiety. Um, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll have lesser of the other things that are in excess that, that aren't necessary. So now the excessive high carbohydrates and sugars and excessive fats, um, depending on how you do it, I, I'm not recommending broccoli doused in cheese sauce, but, um, but for some people, maybe that's a start. Mm -hmm. it, it makes me think I, I made a comment a week or two ago that a comparison between me and my wife, Tracy, for example, if, if in just normal life, no dieting, no pressure to perform in any way nutritionally, um, if I'm hungry and I want a snack, I want to head right to the tortilla chips. Tracy goes right for some carrots or broccoli with dip. Um, and you know, it, there's just, there's just such a difference between those habits. And then you see yeah. people who are just chronically lean or who chronically struggle. And some of those habits, again, as I look at clients who are pretty new to dieting, uh, this isn't their 17th diet in two years, and they keep failing forward into another methodology. People who are <clears throat> really kind of excited and pouring some energy into a life change, they do so well because as soon as they increase their protein by a meal or two a day, as soon as they do start increasing fiber intake through the form of fruits or vegetables, so much of that other hunger-driven behavior just falls away. It doesn't have to be to the nth degree of accuracy and objectivity. That's where a, a little change behaviorally can go a long way. I think for those of us who are a little bit chronically in the know with nutrition, we're already analyzing everything. We've already got enough protein. We do well with getting enough vegetables. I think it's just a different state. Then it's almost a burden to know as much as we do. And we find ourselves in a psychological grind against yeah. hunger and deprivation where we, we, we've kind of lost the benefits of moving those big blocks first that make things easier. I kind of hate to say it, but you're the right person to say this to. Like, how do these people poo? Right. I mean, seriously, how do you poo? And and don't we know you've Probably done the problem? Diet doc, you I know for sure has have have done the um, you know, the good dump talks. And and, and it's really important. And you know, I wonder how much <laughs> maybe people might just, you know, generally just start to feel better physically, um, you know, not just satiety, but in some other ways, um, gut health wise, you know, how gut health can really change uh, mood and behavior in a very positive fashion. Increasing fiber can do more for people um, than just simply, you know, moving food along. Um, it, it, you know, really can change the entire scope of what's inside your gastrointestinal system, which can have incredible mental and physical health benefits just there. Very true. Uh, Kevin, any thoughts on your end? Not really. Jen really summarized it pretty perfectly. Um, nothing much on the nutrition perspective, uh, as far as just the main points, you know, we're all biased on what we, we know what's best, right. You know, as far as the literature and what's the general consensus, um, it's not at all surprising. Um, I, what I'm, you know, I'm trying to think about this from a practical standpoint, if, you know, patient a client comes in and they say what do you think what do you make of this what's what what are the key takeaways and it's 
there's a lot of points or a few, you know, a few big points is that there's too much energy. Um, fat is just too high, not to mention saturated fat. Yeah, sugar is high, carbs are out of whack, fiber is is uh, pitiful. Um improve any one of those, you probably are you're going to move in the step forward. That's that's the power of just so that's just the power of making a simple change. I mean, we, you know, medically just have a 5% change in weight, you're going to see huge improvements in biometrics. It doesn't have to be something grand, even if it may have to ultimately be hundred pounds of a weight loss in time. But if you still lose 5% of something, you're going to see improvements and probably feel better. And therefore that will motivate you. But um, I'm just more intrigued about your point, Jen, with looking at differences in gender, what, you know, far as the a trans 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 transition that just would be really fascinating to find out those little teasers of biomechanics or biological versus uh, environmental that would just be incredible um one of the things that may surprise you guys it kind of surprised me a little bit about three weeks ago i started just doing an audit of my own nutrition and i have consistently told you guys the difference between me as a professional bodybuilder and I knew that to to get lean, to get down to 5% or lower, I would typically diet on 1,700, 1,800 calories. My typical maintenance levels would be about 22, 2,300. And I would say, you know, now that I've not dieted for 17 years, I, I thought I was still in those standards. I'm at 15% body fat, which is my natural metabolic set point. If if I don't, if I'm not trying to go one way or the other, I, I kind of settle in here and I just don't deviate. I don't gain, I don't lose. And so I thought for sure, as I hear from clients quite a bit, like some days, some weeks, I think I'm eating pretty well. I'm eating intuitively, 80, 90% of my food is very healthy. Gosh, darn it. Why am I not losing faster? So I decided, golly gee, there might might be an answer. Let me track my macros. I was stunned that the first two to three days I was eating 2,800 to 3,000 calories. And just like this study would intimate, my fat intake was 100 to 120 grams. And I'm not even eating egg yolks. I'm not eating peanut butter. It's just when you start, I, I guess, not caring about super, super high food quality, and you end up getting, I don't know, just just a like I said, two servings of tortilla chips as a snack. You're like, wow, there's 30 grams of fat right there. Like, you know, that really starts to add up instead of having the baked chips, or you know, maybe I could have some fruit or like my wife, a vegetable there. And when you intentionally eat well, like those things change. Like, I mean, instantly as we've been talking about. So I embarrassingly left to my own devices, even though I eat a really good amount of healthy food, I kind of fall into this line. My protein is twice as much as they were here. So that's good. My fiber's way better. And I, I poop well, Jen. Uh, so I've got a leg up on the, the group in the UK there. Um, but man, you know, fat and saturated fats and probably even quality carbs. I'll mention that. Another thing that we didn't hit, even if you ask these people, in ad libitum situations just to eat more healthy starch because everybody's so carb phobic now let yourself have some rice let yourself have some fruit let yourself have a baked potato with lunch 
again, you sate yourself so much better having those normalized blood sugar levels. And then you're not reaching for the the chocolate and the ice cream and the shitty foods. It just, it's just true. We have to let ourselves eat healthy food in sufficient quantities. So we're not constantly craving and reaching for binge quantities of the really, really bad stuff. Yeah, that's, that, that's really important, you know, and, and like in, in counter to that. So I sent you my pictures um, recently where I, where I'd had sepsis, which is about a 10,000 calorie per day deficit, if not more. Um, and I, I had sent Joe my progress pictures. I've gained 20 pounds over two years and Joe, do I look fat? <laughs> I was impressed that that bicep shot was, was amazing, but you know, I really don't, I probably don't have more than my usual standard of, you know, I'm, I'm a low fat person. So maybe I'm 12 to 15. Um, you know, I'm not like super duper lean, but I, but, but, um, that took a lot of really hard work to gain, um, on a really good diet. So, you know, I will also say that for, for, um, for gaining, and if you're on a really healthy diet with a lot of high food quality, it's not, it's not easy. Like it's not easy to get fat. So people who change their diet, they're not going to accidentally gain 20 pounds. I'm telling you, I, I mean, like I worked my tail off to do that without, you know, with, with, with what I wanted to regain was lost lean body mass. Yeah. I, I, I should have done a little bit more survey between the UK and us. I don't think there would be huge cultural differences in the the food availability and that kind of thing, but it, it is just kind of stunning. Like even me, as I mentioned with tortilla chips or a little snack here, uh, even something like a protein bar, granola bar that may be a little bit higher in fat may have 10 or 12 grams of fat instead of just having a, a protein shake. Um, if, if I had to instantly, which I have been, by the way, I've lost about five pounds in the last three weeks as I started tracking my macros shocking. I know that you had some accuracy and objectivity and good things happen. One of the things that I had to do instantly to start tapping down that fat intake was make some of those changes, just some of those more processed, even though they're quote healthier foods to just intentionally almost ultra leaner levels. And then you start feeling better. Blood sugar regulation is easier. That the the fat in the system, the lipids, are creating less toxic inflammatory stress, and so many good things happen in a cascading way. It it, it almost takes care of itself, as we've now said a couple of different ways. But any of the thoughts, you guys? I saw Amy kind of came off of. There you go. Yeah, I just can't believe that for a study that was done in the UK that they didn't break out alcohol in. I would like to know where they tracked that, if they tracked it as a sugar and a carbohydrate or just as a carbohydrate, because it was so interesting for me to see that you're looking at people who are a working age and then into retirement and those carbohydrate intake went up so high in women wondering if there's an alcohol related component of that. Like maybe they weren't drinking a lot when they were working or raising children, but then their alcohol consumption went up once they retired or their kids moved out like that kind of thing. And also just for men, if that stayed more stable because their baseline alcohol consumption remained the same. Um, I would love to know that piece of it because it seems like, you know, just the carbohydrate consumption and alcohol can add up so quickly, especially in a, a nation or a country where people do, you know, consume alcohol on a regular basis. And also in correlation with that, just rates of like depression in that same kind of swing in that age group, you know, you see women going from perimenopause, you know, through menopause, and perhaps you know, you're not getting those 
hormonally driven swings, but maybe just um, some sadness and depression rates went up over time. Those are things I think would be so fascinating to, to pick out of that study. I, I will look and report back to you in the group chat, Amy, but um, I, I did not see alcohol mentioned at all, you know, nor, nor mental health. I just think that was beyond the scope of this, but it, it is interesting to your point, like why alcohol would not even be a variable. Um, yeah, because if you don't ask, people don't tell. I mean, that's human <laughs> nature. No, seriously. Yeah. I mean, this, we see this in addiction medicine all the time. If you don't ask, they're not going to tell you about it. If you ask about what they ate, they'll tell you what they ate. They won't tell you what they drank. She's totally right. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I hear they like beer over there. I, I have not been. I've wanted to yeah. go to the UK and I have not. Uh, my friend Zach Parsons has been over there two or three times in the last couple of years and he loves it. Now, Ted Lasso is probably going to increase her tourism. As I mentioned in my post, if you saw that, next week and the week following, we're going to take off, just take a break as we get ready and then execute our training camp we're having here. Um, so, you know, got some people coming in early. Yes, Jen, can't, can't wait to get you here for one of those one of these days. We're planning on doing these close to quarterly in different themes. Uh, one of the reasons I did this one for training, I, as I have found it, more pedagogically appropriate for a single coach to manage training and nutrition for clients. I think it's easier and more receptive for clients to have that information coming from the same single person. Um, man, training is just where it's at in terms of what people need for really specific instruction. And with the advent of easy video clips, I constantly have clients sending me video snips of their, these are my three top sets of squats and I'm watching them, you know, perform these things and they're asking questions. So, you know, for a lot of our clients, maybe at both kind of the lower level of experience and higher, uh, that's a place where a coach can really have some great input for safety and effectiveness. So anyway, when I decided we'll do our first ever training only training specific camp, I mean, just sold out instantly. So my intuition is right, and there's definitely some some interest and curiosity there. So I'll probably record some of that. As I prepare some of the lecture-type stuff, you'll hear that. That will definitely be part of my return back to our research uh, here. I'm currently combing through line-by-line line, uh, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld's latest textbook on exercise science. I think his format, I just messaged him yesterday, and I said, man, your format on this is spectacular. Talk about being very current and modern and in a good way to articulate relevant science. But you guys uh, be on the lookout for that. It'll be well worth the wait that you'll be the benefactors of some of that info. But Mondays will still be here for clients doing the, the live chat support work. But you guys have a great weekend and I'll answer some of these questions in the chat. Thanks, guys.